Heavenly Father, as we gathered this afternoon, Lord, for our worship, our study, Lord, we once again ask you to come and, Lord, meet us where we are and lead us in righteousness. Lord, help us to grow in our knowledge and understanding of your Bible and the people of God. And Lord, let these things that we learn find application in our daily lives, Lord. As we look at the world that we're living in, all the various um, errors, Lord, that have great, great ramifications. I pray that you would use us as a voice along with many voices crying in the wilderness to lead, uh, Lord, the church back to firmer ground as it relates to your covenant and people. So bless us, come and gently correct us and lead us in righteousness. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. amen. Okay. Um, before I read Philippians 3, let me at least explain my goal for this afternoon. I know last week I was able to set before you um, some biblical concepts about the church, about the people of God. I'm going to um, bring part two to that, but I, what I want to do, my goal in this this afternoon is at least to show you that it's that's been the case from the time of Abraham. That was in the case even before Abraham. That is, this is nothing new. This is not replacement theology. This is what we'll be accused of. If you hold to the view that, that, that I'm teaching you, that the, basically the Reformed Church has believed forever, um, you're going to be accused of anti-Semitism. You're going to be accused of replacement theology. And dispensationalism has had a lot to do um, with that. And I'm not going to go into explaining dispensationalism, the theology. You can, there's books out there. You can look it up online. There's, I'm just not going to do that. I want to just deal with texts of Scripture. I'm going to bring them to your attention and then connect them. I think that's the best way to learn it. I think that's the, these are the places you go in your Bible when people come to you and you say, well, explain this to me. And they're going to be shocked. They're, going to, they're not going to know what to do with it because the Bible is, the Bible's a lot clearer on this matter than the than, than majority of people. And I'm talking mainly about dispensationalists. Okay, um, so now let me read from Philippians chapter 3. Now, again, this lesson is God's people are not by blood, but by faith. And this is the way it's always been. God's people are not by blood, but by faith. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, Paul says, Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. I write the same things again. To write the same things again is no trouble to me. It is a safeguard for you. Beware of the dogs. 
Beware of the evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and and glory in Christ Jesus who put no confidence in the flesh. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to the righteousness which is in the law found blameless, but whatever things were gained to me, those things I counted as loss for Christ, for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, I'm sure that some of you have already caught the verses that I'm going to highlight. Now, Paul is warning the true church about the false church. He's warning the true church. And he's warning them to be aware, uh, to beware of what he calls dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the false circumcision. For we are the true circumcision. Now, think about what Paul is saying and think about what dots we connected last week. The false circumcision was that of the flesh. Sort of that outward covenantal sign that didn't mean anything. It was just an emblem, if you will, of a nation. Paul is saying that circumcision is is nothing. We, the Christians are the true circumcision. And the reason Paul can say that is because the circumcision that God seeks for is the circumcision of the what? The heart. And that's what it says in Deuteronomy 10, chapter 10 and Deuteronomy 30, that they were to seek the circumcision of the heart. Okay. And Paul Again, writing to the Christian church, we say Christian church just to identify it because it's not a new church. It's not something that was non-existent, but it didn't exist in this form. When Christ came, died, and established the, um, the, or the apostles and elders and all that, the church took on a different form than it had in the days of old. Why? Because the nation of Israel was going to soon go away. The the, the nation, that is, the, the nation of Israel, as you would have known it, was going to pass away. And so it's important to recognize as the church continues on as a new dispensation, Christ comes, he's fulfilled all of the requirements of the ceremonial law, so to speak, and now 
the church has taken on a, a brighter, greater, uh, simpler, but as our confession says, more powerful um, presence. Even though the New Testament church doesn't have the pomp and the glory, if you will, the outward glory of the old covenant, it clearly states that it, the New Testament church is a more effectual church in the sense of the preaching of the gospel, the means of grace, and that sort of thing. Why? Because Christ has come and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and now he's mediating all these things, bringing it all about, fulfilling these promises. So, um, so we see the words of the Apostle Paul, who, I mean, was circumcised on the eighth day of the nation of Israel, so to, of the tribe of Benjamin, theologically a Pharisee. Um, this is, these are his words. So what, we, what we're believing about this, I mean, was the teaching and the writings of a, quote, Jew. Paul was considered to be what? A Jew. And what we have said last week, and we will continue to affirm this, the New Testament church in its birth was a very Jewish church. Not, not that it took on the nationality of the Jew, but that Jews were coming into repentance and coming to believe that Christ was the promised Messiah. Okay. Let's go all the way back to Genesis 12. Now, it is, is my understanding, the way I read the Bible, the way I pick it up, the way I open it up, the way I start reading from, from uh, Genesis 1, the beginning of creation, there, the, we have to see this in, in a, in, in in sort of the uh, lineage, the historical dots, the lineage here, if you will, there's three epic failures prior to Genesis 12. Three. You know what they are. There's the fall. There's the breaking of the covenant of works. Epic failure number one. Epic failure number two was a failure to believe the gospel that Noah preached and he preached it for over 100 years. And the flood came because of the rampant apostasy, neglect of the gospel, a failure to believe what uh, the, the threat of judgment, all of those things. There were only eight people in the church at that time. And the flood came. So that's, that's epic failure number two. Epic failure number three is the Tower of Babel. As now you have the, the whole lineage of Noah repopulating the earth again. He gives them the mandate to spread out. They don't, they congregate, build a tower, so to speak, to basically make man God. That's the, the essential uh, theological import there that, that man considers himself either God or equal with God. And, of course, we see that's sort of the problem all along the way, is it not? And God comes and confuses their language and spreads them out over the earth. Now, that makes evangelism a lot more difficult. 
And then God now chooses to go through a different, uh, um, uh, God now chooses Abram to fulfill his covenant of grace. That is, Abraham, it's through him that the covenant of grace is going to continue. We have Noah, we have Seth, we have Enoch, we have Noah, and now it's going to be through Abraham. All along the way, it's all by faith. It's all faith. And so when you look at Genesis chapter 12, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing and I will bless those who bless you and the ones and the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And let me just stop there. It is clear by these verses that God now is intending to use Abraham to be in his, his lineage to be a blessing to the whole earth. Up until that point, what's happening in the whole earth? Adam was going to fill the earth with his own seed, and if he had not fallen, what kind of seed would he have filled the earth with? Well, righteous seed. He failed. What was Noah supposed to do? Preach the gospel, call nations, uh, call peoples back to repent of their sins and and begin the works of righteousness. And that was a that was a worldwide gospel. Why? Well, because all the people at the time of Noah had one language. Remember, we're not at the time, we're not the languages haven't been confused yet. We're able to we're able to converse and interact in all of these various things. And so you see this emphasis on the world and all up until we get to the Tower of Babel, there's language confusion and they're spread out, quote, all over the whole world, which then changes certainly methodologies and whatnot. And now he's going to work through Abraham, but notice the promise. The promise is what? That the whole world would be blessed through you. Look at um, Genesis 15. Genesis 15, verse 18. And on that day, the Lord Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, your descendants, to your descendants I have given this land from the river of Egypt as far as the greater river, the river Euphrates. We see in this a land promise, and this is, this is no small matter because what a lot of people are saying is, well, until Israel fully has the land, then they're sort of still out here waiting on God's blessing. Well, I, what I'm going to show you is God has fulfilled that promise. God has already fulfilled the land promise through the, quote, descendants of Abraham. And we're going to get to who they are. Okay. Um, we see the same thing in Genesis 15, uh, 17, 
Verse 1, now Abram was 99 years old, and the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. And Abraham fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, but as for me, behold, my covenant is with you. And you will be a father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations, and I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you, and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your descendants after you. Now, if we get the... If we, if we misunderstand who these descendants are, then we, we are going to have problems. Because again, it's not by race, but by grace. It's not a bloodline, but a faith line. That's why it's an everlasting covenant. Um, turn to Galatians chapter 3. Paul has answered this question. Remember, the Judaizers are coming into the church and they're trying to make these Gentiles, these Gentile Christians into Jews. They're basically trying to convert them to Judaism. And what they're saying is, oh, no, 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 it's not by faith. You, you've got to be circumcised. You've got to keep these Old Testament laws. You've got to keep these Old Testament feasts and all of these various. Basically, you've got to become a national, quote, Jew in order for you to have this relationship with God. That's what Paul's answering here. And again, it, Paul, what Paul's going to do is Paul's going to say, no, they're wrong. And not only are they wrong, they don't even understand their father Abraham. They don't even understand Abraham. They're out of lockstep, even with Abraham, okay? And so um, let's go to, look at verse six. I kind of want to read, I want to get through several of these. Even so Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of the faith who are the sons of Abraham. What you've been hearing me say, but what is Paul, what's Paul saying here? Paul's saying, listen, just like it was by grace that Abraham became a follower of God and was brought into the family of God, so are his descendants. His true descendants are spiritual descendants. His true descendants are not of a bloodline, but of a faith and it's of grace. And so Paul's arguing against these Judaizers all the way back to Abraham. He said the descendants of Abraham are those that are of faith. He says the scripture, verse 8, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. Now, this is an inspired interpretation of the Abrahamic covenant. What is Paul saying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Paul is saying that even Abraham knew that the gospel that he had received, 
He had repented of his sins. He has put his faith in Jesus Christ. Even Abraham understood that his true descendants would be of grace and faith, not of a physical lineage. Why? Because that was the gospel he believed. Notice again, let's read it again. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. Now, Abraham was a Gentile. Okay? Preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham the believer. Okay, I think, I mean, I really think that sort of, um, I think settles that matter. Because it wasn't by circumcision. Circumcision did not secure one in the kingdom of God. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. Being a part of a Hebrew home did not secure you a place in the kingdom of God. Not in the Old Testament, not in the New Testament. It's by faith. Now let's get back to this land promise. Look in your Bibles to Joshua 21. Joshua 21, 43. This is a verse that I brought to the meeting that uh, me and several uh, ministerial students had with a very prominent dispensational person years ago. And when I brought this verse up, they had no answer. Because remember, the dispensationalists still view this as far into the future. That's the whole purpose of sort of the um, thousand year reign of Christ. That's when, that's when God's going to come and Jesus is going to come back and reign on the earth and, and then Israel's going to possess the land again. Well, look at verse 43 of Joshua 21. What does that verse say? So the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had sworn to give to their fathers and they possessed it and lived in it. Now, brothers and sisters, that's the word of God. What does the Bible say? The Bible says that God did fulfill his promise. Notice that the Lord gave Israel all the land which he had what? Sworn to give, promised to give to their fathers, and they did possess it, and they lived in it. Now, this is huge. I mean, well, not so much to us, because again, the land has always been a type of the world. The land has never been the focus of the covenant of grace. It's because remember, how many families of the earth are going to be blessed through Abraham? How many? All the families of the earth, right? Not some, not a few, not a portion, not one nation. All the families of the earth will be blessed through him. So the land was always a symbol representing 
what God was going to eventually do in Christ throughout the whole world. And that's what Paul addresses in the latter part of Galatians 3 when he says that Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham. Okay? Jesus is the fulfillment of the seed of Abraham. Okay. Let's add a little more clarity to this. Let me see if I can. Look at uh, Esther, not this Esther, the Esther in the Bible. This Esther is fine to look at. I mean, there's not a problem with it, but let's look at the Esther in the Bible. Chapter 8. Look at verse 17. In each and every province and in each and every city, wherever the king's commandment and his decree arrived, there was gladness and joy for the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many among the peoples of the land, what's it say? Something happened to them. What happened to them? They became Jews. For the dread of the Jews had fallen on them. How do you become a, how do you become a different ethnicity? How do you do that? What is, it, what is this verse referring to? Well, what it's telling us is that because God had blessed the church, many recognized God's blessings and they become converts. They had become converts to what we would call the Old Testament church at that time. That's what it means to become a Jew is to take up their customs, their worship, so to speak. They didn't become a Jew by bloodline. They became one by grace. And that helps you understand a lot of that New Testament language where especially Paul goes back and forth talking about these things. Now, before you accuse me of heresy, let's bring up a few names. David committed adultery. The woman that he committed adultery with was named what? Bathsheba. Do you remember her husband's name? Uriah, the, the what? That doesn't sound Jewish. He wasn't Jewish. He was a convert. He had been absorbed into the covenant of grace, if you will. He was a righteous man. The Bible clearly states, talks about his righteousness. He was a patriot in Israel under King David. He was a military, uh, I don't think, uh, captain in the nation of Israel. He was a Hittite. The Hittites were the enemies 
if you will, of the Jewish people. How did he become, how did he get there? How did he get there? By grace, by faith, by accepting the true and living God. Now that's not the only one. That's not the only one. We're not gonna stop there. But what I'm saying is we read these texts all the time. And I think we take a lot for granted um, It kind of does make you wonder, though, and I think it's important because was Bathsheba a Jewish? If she was, did she have a problem marrying a Hittite? Because they were forbidden, right, to do that. You see the complications we run into that the Bible speaks no problem at all. The Bible speaks of these things with no problem at all. Why? Because it's by grace and faith, not by bloodline. I've got another one for you. Do you remember Joshua that led the campaign into the land of Canaan? Do you remember his compatriot's name? Caleb. Do you remember where he was from? Hmm? <laughs> I know it's hard. He was a Kenizzite. He was not of the tribe of Israel. And yet, here's this prominent figure. In fact, out of the Exodus, he and Joshua are the only two ancestors of that exodus that enter into the promised land. So he wasn't even of Israel, yet he was not of the bloodline, but he was of it by grace and by covenant. And in fact, uh, the Bible speaks of his bravery and even to that, listen, listen, can you imagine this land is so important to Israel? Nationality and land, nationality and land. This land's our land. What's the problem going over there in Gaza right now? That's our land. No, it's our land. No, we were here first. No, it's always been ours. Who gave it to? God gave it to us. All, that's the argument. Well, Caleb was not of the bloodline of, quote, Israel, and yet he was given a portion of the promised land. Why? Because it's by faith. That's, that's Joshua 14, 14. Joshua 15, 13. He gave to Caleb, the son of Zephaniah, a portion among the sons of Judah, according to the command of the Lord to Joshua. Caleb was given a portion of the promised land. He was not a, quote, Israelite. He was of the covenant of grace with Abraham. Okay, we're not stopping there. We're going, we're going further. Numbers 12. Moses 
has um, remarried. We believe his first wife has passed away. He's remarried, and who did he remarry? This is Moses. Who did Moses remarry? He marries a Cushite, an Ethiopian, not an Israelite, at least not by birth. You know, that's the point I keep going back and forth making. He marries this dark-skinned woman. Can a leopard change his spots? Can a Ethiopian change the color of their skin? That's Joshua or Jeremiah. She's not an Israelite of, of the, quote, lineage. But she is obviously won by grace because Moses marries her. I, these are just things that I'm pointing, pointing out to you. Um, that shows you that if you take this classical dispensational view that this, this bloodline nation, you've got all kinds of problems theologically, biblically in the Bible. You, you've got all kinds of things that you have to answer for, if you will. And the only way this makes sense is to really accept the New Testament interpretation of the Old Testament, of particularly Abraham. Uh, the covenant with Abraham. And as Paul said, it's always been by faith. You are the children of Abraham if you have faith. Nothing's changed. That's how did you become a member of the Old Testament church, the nation of Israel, so to speak? By faith. That's how you became a member. That's how Rahab became a member. Let's um, look at it sort of in the broad context. Uh, we could go to Jonah. I don't even have this in my notes, but I want to speak to it. Jonah, Nineveh. I mean, if this, this bloodline is everything, if the covenant is a bloodline covenant instead of a covenant of grace, it's a covenant of bloodline. If that's the important part of it, then how is there justification for the conversion of Nineveh, a Gentile city? Remember, Jonah has a problem with it. You, you remember when Jonah went and preached to Nineveh and they repented of their sins, you remember Jonah got upset about their repentance and started, you know, bickering with God, if you will. And God said, what's the problem with you if I choose to be gracious to whoever I choose to be gracious to? He goes, I knew you were going to convert them. I mean, that's basically what Jonah says. I knew when, I, when you sent me to preach, you were going to convert them. I knew it. But you see, Jonah was of the, the lineage model. He's stuck in this heritage that Paul says is worthless. 
that Paul says, I was there too. I was stuck in that heritage, but it means nothing. And it was not the intention that God had. The intention God has for the saving of Abraham and the descendants of Abraham all comes and flows through grace and it's salvation by faith in Christ. Christ is the fulfilled seed of Abraham. And the nations are going to be blessed through that seed. All the families of the earth will be blessed. That's why Paul says, we are the church. We're the true circumcision. They're the false circumcision. They're false because that's not what God, that's not the intention that God wanted. That's why Paul says, circumcision is nothing. Non-circumcision is nothing. None of it's nothing. What matters is faith in Christ. That's the way it's always been. And in fact, the New Testament, Jesus uses Nineveh to provoke Israel, the Jews. In Luke chapter 11, verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah and behold, something greater than Jonah is here now. They didn't even repent at Jesus' preaching. And Jesus says, do you not know that even Nineveh is going to rise up against this generation? How? By, by grace, by faith. Now, brothers and sisters, dispensationalism teaches that God has two people. He's got the church and he's got the Jews. And there's this major dichotomy between the two. That's heretical. God has never had two people, ever. 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 There's nowhere in Old or New Testament that God ever insinuates, implies, or directly states, I have two people. He only has one people. And that people has always been a people by faith. After the fall, always by faith. And that's why you see, let's let's back our thinking up to the Exodus. Well, let's back our way back up even to Genesis because when, after Genesis 17 and Genesis 18, um, in Genesis 18, what do we see happen to Lot? Lot's captured. Now, there's something interesting going on here because um, Abraham has an army. Now, if you see it flows into uh, 18 and in the beginning of 19 there, Abraham has an army of 300 plus people. Men, not women and men, but men. So that means there's women and children involved in this, in this army he possesses. Where did they come from? Where did they come from? Remember, they're circumcised. <laughs> Remember when God commanded Abraham to be circumcised and his whole house? Isaac wasn't born. 
Ishmael wasn't born yet. Look how large his household is. You have maybe a thousand people. By the time you count 300 and something men plus wives plus children. But again, what does God affirm to Abraham on into the next few chapters? My, my, the lineage of grace is going to flow through Isaac, not Ishmael. So here Ishmael is even born and God says, no, my, my lineage is not going to go. The, the covenant of grace is not running through Ishmael. It's running through Isaac. And we see this sovereign election, if you will, of God's choosing who is going to be his representatives and God choosing how the covenant of grace will progress in history. And again, we know the Arab nations are the lineage of Ishmael. Does that mean they can't be saved? No. It doesn't mean that. It means that in particular, God is telling Abraham, who's going to, who's he working particularly through in order to advance that lineage and that bloodline is important as it relates to Jesus theologically. Jesus was a true descendant of the bloodline of Abraham. God protected that and made sure that stayed preserved. So you see this entourage of people and then you go to the Exodus. Notice you've got the, it says that 70 went down into Egypt and they came out, how many? Well, at least probably 2 million. They weren't all Israelites. They weren't all Israelites because the Bible tells us that they were a mixed multitude coming out of Egypt. A mixed multitude. And what do we find going into the promised land? Do you remember? What was it that caused them to wander around in the desert? You remember what it was? They disobeyed God's voice. God told them to send spies into the promised land, spy it out so that they could come back and then go in and take it. Remember what happened when they came back? Joshua and Caleb were part of the 10 spies that went there, or 12 spies that went there. Do you remember what they said? Oh, they are like giants over there. Oh, we're grasshoppers. They'll kill us. And Joshua and Caleb said, not a problem, Lord. We can go take it. So what did Israel do? They rebelled against the Lord. I'll say the nation, these unconverted, these, these people that weren't circumcised of heart, again, rebelled against God, his covenant, his promises, all of these things, and they wandered in the desert for 40 years until they died out. And then God takes their descendants into the um, promised land, reform, affirming again the covenant with them, to do what? Listen to the, my voice and I'll bless you. And again, all of these things, these physical signs were to, be, were, were to be physical signs, but they were supposed to be the result of the inward realities. 
The circumcision of the flesh should have been truly circumcision of the heart. Let me, you can prove this by the Old Testament. You don't have to go to the New Testament when it says circumcision means nothing. Was Nineveh circumcised? No, they were not. Did God break his covenant? No. Because it's by faith. You see, there's a lot going on in the Old Testament. So you can see when you bring all that into the New Testament, you can see now whether New Testament writers are not contradicting anything. They're affirming everything that had already been affirmed and shadowy and maybe typical in that sense, but they are just coming right over into the New Testament and they're saying, now this new people, the spiritual people, they are the true people of God. That's why it's not replacement theology. Who's being replaced? No one. It's the continuation of the Abrahamic covenant by grace through faith on up until the end of the world until the whole world is blessed by Christ. So brothers and sisters, when it talks about the land over there, it's nothing more than another piece of real estate like your, that's it. Another real estate. Does it have a rich history? Yeah, sure. It does. A lot of places in the Middle East have rich histories. I mean, that particular more because Jesus did walk on that ground over there. Other than that, not so important. Because the goal is not a little sliver of land on the Mediterranean Sea. The goal that God has in view is the whole world. And that's Romans chapter four. Because he says that Abraham is the heir of the world. And when I show people these verses, these verses that I'm showing you and explaining to you, when I show them to my dispensational friends, they absolutely have no answers for them because it doesn't fit in their narrative. It doesn't fit in their theological system. In Romans chapter four, I think it's verse four here, let's see. Oh, verse 13, for the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Verse 13 is a very important verse when you're talking to a dispensationalist. The focus isn't on that sliver of land. The focus is the world. And now we go back to Psalm 2. Who's been given the world? Jesus. Jesus has been given the nations. Do you see how all of this fits together in a nice theological system that makes sense? You, 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 you see the importance of the preaching of the gospel. You see the importance of Christ. That's what, Look, when you take this morning's sermon and you apply that to a lot, of, a, a lot of, quote, Jewish people that have rejected Jesus, look at them. 
the dereliction, the spiritual darkness, the evil. Listen, I mean, they, by and large today, a modern day Jew is typically an atheist, a liberal, a communist <laughs> of a communist stripe, very uh, LGBTQ, X, XYZ, transgender, many, I mean, a lot of the science and the technologies came from Jewish doctors uh, promoting this. This, this is, it's, it's darkness. They are not of the children of Abraham. They are not of Abraham. And nor should we act like they are. Paul called them the false circumcision and dogs. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. I, listen, you, that's why he said, I wish they'd go the whole way and emasculate themselves. Now, that's very graphic. I don't have to explain that. Don't just go a little bit. Just take it all off. Paul was not messing around when he talked about these who claimed to be the true circumcision. All right, let's finish what we've got here and then take a few minutes